Hello, you're listening to the podcast version of ACFM on Navarra Media. And on the podcast version of this show, you'll get the stimulating and mind-expanding discussion from our hosts, but you won't get the music. That's because of the way rights and licenses work in the digital age. So you're really only getting half the picture, but there is an easy way to fix that. If you head over to the navaramedia.com website, you can stream the full show. It's easy enough. Just follow the link in the description of this podcast. Otherwise, enjoy the standalone discussion in this episode of ACFM. Welcome to ACFM, the home of the weird left. I'm Jeremy Gilbert, uh, and I'm joined as usual so far by Nadia Idol. Hello. And Keir Milburn. Hello. So today we're talking about love and hate, but we're also talking about punks and hippies. Um, Jeremy, do you want to tell us a little bit about why those two pairs are related? Well, I think, um, you know, the hippies thought all you need is love. um, And the punk response to that was, no, you need hate and anger in order to fight oppression. And this seems like a kind of interesting challenge to the sort of politics of collective joy that we've been promoting on this podcast. Because we've been very sort of hippie positive, I think. Uh, We're talking about this partly because... In some ways, the whole kind of notion of acid communism and acid Corbynism, the whole sort of project, I think, in my head, probably only in my head, it begins uh, at this moment when uh, Mark Fisher and I are doing some, we're doing some seminar at UEL, and uh, the, the issue of the kind of legacy of 1968 comes out, comes up. And Mark says, which was a kind of normal thing still for people to say in those days, oh, well, 1968 was just a failure. You know, it just let, it was just, you know, it was just part of the counterculture and that all went nowhere. And I just said, no, and I turned around and said, that's not true. That's just, it, it got defeated. You know, it didn't, it wasn't inherently doomed to fail. And the belief that it's doomed to fail is, you know, is part of, you know, what you, Mark, call capitalist realism. I think, I don't know if it was the same seminar. It might have been a different one and Mark might not even have been at that one. There was something about the, about politics and music and someone else trotted out, you know, the, what was the sort of traditional line of anybody who'd grown up with the British music press in the kind of 80s and 90s, which was that, you know, hippies had been an embarrassing disaster and, uh, you know, everything associated with the counterculture or the kind of radicalism of the early 70s was just embarrassing and punk had somehow rescued us from that yeah, brilliantly and that we should all be eternally grateful for the brilliance that was punk and I start, I turn around and start going on to now oh, that's just rubbish yeah that's just hippie phobia and it's also historically not true so start, and it's been proven wrong by history because where has punk ended up punks ended up with with both John Lydon and Iggy Pop doing tv adverts Iggy Pop had done an advert for car insurance and John Lydon had done one for Utterly Butterly. Like, <laughs> dairy spread. <laughs> no, really. And I, and I goes, I goes, Jerry Garcia never, never, Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead never advertised car insurance. Therefore, jury of history is in. You know, he, hippies are better than punks. Does he not get any money from that um, Cherry Garcia ice cream, <laughs> Ben and Jerry's ice cream? <laughs> well, um, maybe, but you know, do you know what the fir- the company that's given the most so far to the Bernie Sanders campaign is Ben and Jerry's. It's Ben and Jerry's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's it's some not- sort of dairy dairy conflict <laughs> like, lurking behind <laughs> utterly butterly. All you need is love. Famous kind of hippie anthem uh, sung by the Beatles in 1967, "The Summer of Love." They wrote it especially for a program called One World, which was the first ever global satellite broadcast. It was kind of organised by the BBC, but also by a load of other broadcasters around the world. And it had a viewership of something like 400 million. And so it was this kind of, you know, 
simplistic but deliberately so so that it could be understood by people all around the world who didn't necessarily speak english sort of evocation of an idea of sort of global unity and peace and on the one hand it was a really kind of fantastic moment and it was the very high moment historically of sort of post-war social democracy it was the moment just before kind of unemployment was really going to start biting in those industrial areas like birmingham and detroit and the whole thing was going to sort of fall apart but also by a year later i think even in the eyes of people like john lennon he wrote the song it was going to seem like a really naive message because it was clear to people by sort of 1968 that actually if you wanted to stop the war in vietnam if you wanted to get a progressive government without having your leader your, your potential progressive politicians assassinated as happened to bobby kennedy in 68 then you were probably going to have to find some way to fight back against the sort of you know oppression of capitalists and imperialists who did not want us to live in the world in which all we would need is love so and i would say sort of punk is the sort of you know it's a somewhat delayed reaction but in a way sort of punk is just is reacting against what it sees as that complacency uh, and that unwillingness to confront oppression and alienation um that the that more sort of naive version of hippie utopianism uh, expressed you know i mean when i first encountered punk as any kind of an organic phenomenon in the 80s I mean, the scene I encountered it in was really this sort of squat and festival scene. And mostly it was people who had come out of, actually, the hippie movement of the 60s and early 70s, which believed that they would change the world just by showing everyone a better way to do things, by living in communes, by, you know, living as much as possible without commerce and, you know, without capitalism, by being peaceful, by, by dropping out, as, as Timothy Leary said in the 60s, tune on, turn on, drop out. They tried to do that. They lived in hippies, you know, they lived in teepees in Wales. You know, they'd lived in, you know, sort of communes or squats or, you know, on traveller sites. And what had, what had happened is from the late 70s onwards, the kind of rather tolerant attitude of the establishment and the state to them had started to change. And, and specifically under Thatcher, Thatcher, you know, took the view that in order to be able to implement her neoliberal project, she was going to have to attack those people. So instead of just allowing things like the Stonehenge Free Festival to develop, you know, they the, the police started to try and close it down. They started to attack it. And then there's this... Of course, there's this famous episode in, in the mid-80s when the so-called Battle of the Beanfield happens when the police, Wiltshire police, just physically attack uh, the, the peace convoy, the travellers travelling to Stonehenge Festival. So they were people who were motivated by, they thought, a kind of politics of love, but they came up against the confront, the reality that, you know, brutal neoliberal capitalism, especially in its early, you know, new right kind of authoritarian phase, wasn't going to let them. And they was going to come at them with police truncheons if they if they tried to wave spliffs and, you know, vegan, you know, veggie burgers in the face of the police. That's one of the key problems, isn't it, right? It's that, um, like unrequited love is fucking painful right? <laughs> and, yeah. you know yeah i mean people found that out in the battle of the beanfield as they got their their um homes smashed up and got beaten to, to a pulp you know you can't if you just if you just want to open yourself up and talk and be and, and love everybody you know if it's unrequited then that's a problem <laughs> i think it's important to understand the perception of what of, of the perception of people like john line as to what had happened to the 60s and the legacy of the counterculture and what had happened. I think the perception was that what has happened was the actual idea of the counterculture, which is that you would link kind of hippie ideals of indeed love, peace, creativity, self-consciousness exploration with a radical political and economic agenda. 
had really broken down and what had replaced it was a very kind of complacent kind of consumer capitalism within which certain kinds of you know lifestyle sort of very self-indulgent sort of you know lifestyle experiments were going to be tolerated especially for rich people um but for everybody else, you know, nothing much was going to really change. So for them, like the key figure of the hippie, like Jamie Reid have this famous slogan, never trust a hippie. But he said, when he, if you pushed him on it, like, well, who's a hippie? The person he meant was Richard Branson, you know, who was running like, Virgin Records at that point. It was, the hi- it was the kind of hippie entrepreneur or the kind of the long-haired, socially liberal, but entirely pro-capitalist sort of entrepreneur. And that was what provoked this need for a break. So Hate and War is a song from the Classy's first album, and to me it is the sort of definitive announcement of what punk is supposed to be about. I mean, I mean, it's a very strange lyric, actually, in which the singer takes on a persona. It's not actually, he's not actually saying he's in favour of Hate and War, but he is sort of, you know, he's taking on the persona of a highly alienated kind of individual, you know, in the city, surrounded by kind of antagonistic relationships to uh, just to other individuals. And, but it is, you know, the title is a deliberate, you know, reversal of the hippie slogan, love and peace. And it is basically, you know, it's saying, you know, we don't, we, we're not living in a world of love and peace. And we were not living, you know, that's not what, you know, living through the crisis of capitalism of the mid 70s feels like for most people. You know, the punk reaction against the hippies is really important, is important, or the punk reaction against a particular idea of hippie or a particular destination of for the hippies is important because because it does po- it puts on the agenda this question of well what how do you express you know alienation how do you express a negative situation like how do you respond to it in a way which is sort of constructive because of course the you know the, the character you get from both conservatives and liberals of the left of any kind of radical left is that it's motivated by hate it's motivated by anger it's motivated by resentment i think that's interesting and it's worth exploring because i i see um, the left or sections of the left kind of reaction to that a lot of the time as you know a defen- a defensive one but also one where it feels like um, the response is cornered when if when when you know effectively I think it's it's important to say yes you know people who care about justice are angry <laughs> like of course we're going to be angry um, it doesn't mean that part of the project of what we're trying to agitate for isn't a project of love and joy and collectivity but that doesn't stop the reality of, of, of us of us being angry and angry of the world uh, angry and you know about the world the way and the way it is and that and that and there being hate being at the center of that and hating that that things are the way that they are and hating the fact that that some people are getting in the way of the vast majority of people living decent lives the the main problem that i have with 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 hate um being um an emotion that is that is um that's central to to a lot of people's um, motivation for for their politics is that if it becomes more ang more hate than anger, then I think hate is 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 an emotion which which eats people up as individuals, but also as as groups. It's a very very active emotion, and and it can end up taking up a lot of your time and energy when time and energy can be can be used elsewhere. So that's that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in talking about is it 
it more productive for us to try and put our emotions to to one side to try and uh, to push through? Just to get just to respond to your um, should we be emotionless? Emotionless technocratic politics is basically what we're against. <laughs> That's what we're fighting. And in fact, we could go back to Richard Branson, right, as the epitome of never trust a hippie. Because if you think back to if you think about what the 1990s, early 2000s, and still today, you know, the world we lived in Branson's world, right? You know, that sort of socially liberal but ruthlessly neoliberal economics. You know, that was the world of New Labour, the Third Way, etc. You know, we lived in his world. Uh, and, and in that world, politics is not something you should bother yourself about. Don't you worry about that. We'll take care of that. It's, you know, you know, we just make evidence-based decisions, you know, uh, based on no no uh, emotion and interest, etc. And so what you've seen since 2008 is a, is a return of like, you know, the passions in some sort of way. So, so how I think this links to like 2019... There's this journey that you go on, which the hippie movement was like, right, we're going to drop out and then realizing coming up in, up against neoliberal capital, basically saying, no, your project of wanting to drop out and live in teepees or an alternative lifestyle or you know, school your kids differently or whatever has to be destroyed for us to continue with our project. And then comes you know, punk and anger and the need for a reset. And what I think is happening today is that instead of that emotion of anger um, surfacing as a reaction to, you know, the post-crisis neoliberalism, I think that is being manifested in depression. It's being manifested in an inward-looking kind of eating of oneself. And I think that's also prevalent in, in quite a lot of left spaces, to be honest, where people are scared to be angry because they're scared to be angry by themselves because we don't have that either subculture or that outlet for people to be like angry in big groups that isn't a kind of right-wing uh, fascist march, frankly. I mean, I'd like to hear if you guys have any ideas for like, where, where are we allowed to get angry anymore? See, the way you've just framed that question assumes that getting angry is what we want. And we've already said, I agree with Keir, we don't want a politics of, we don't want a politics of kind of emotionlessness. But I also feel like one of the reasons why it's really interesting to think about punk is because the sort of conclusion I came to in my 20s, like having sort of been a punk and a punk fanatic traveller and then living through kind of rave, which was the punk axiom that anger is good, that anger is productive, that anger is constructive. I couldn't really see any evidence for it actually in reality. Like I couldn't see any real historical examples of a sort of cultural movement or even a political movement that was primarily motivated by anger and outrage actually having gone anywhere. And I think, I mean, I think one has to say that about punk to some extent, that punk doesn't, it's true that a lot of the people who were older came out of the 60s, but a lot of the people who were younger, you know, people like Judy Burchill, you know, they end up on the kind of libertarian right or, you know, they end up, you know, they end up sort of Tories in the 80s. I mean, that's partly what anarcho-punk was sort of reacting against, actually. It was reacting against the fact that a lot of sort of mainstream punk had just turned out to be a sort of dress rehearsal for the, the Thatcherite rejection of everything to do with the 60s. And... I don't know what I feel about anger. Intuitively, it makes a certain sense that, you know, the idea is that most we should be motivated by anger and, and outrage and injustice. But I tend to think, you know, in my lived experience, in the history that I know about, 
I tend to think anger does does just tend to be sort of consuming. That it's it's sort of wrong to be angry at capitalism for one thing, because capitalism just does what it does. Being angry at capitalism is like being angry like a tiger for biting you. That like you want to stop it biting you, and you want to do everything you can to stop it biting anyone else. But getting angry at it is just stupid. It, it implies a kind of moral economy, according to which you could say, yeah, you could imagine it doing anything other than what it does. And I think. You know, I always think of that phrase from Che Guevara, you know, the revolutionary is motivated by feelings of great love. And I feel like it doesn't mean we have to love capitalists that we want to, or it doesn't mean we have to love uh, capitalism. But it is, on some level for me, it is purely from kind of love for each other and love for ourselves and love for the world that we, it's on that basis that we want to oppose everything that tries to, you know, capture the world and colonise it and destroy it and kill it. And um, and I'm not sure what the place of anger is in that in that kind of economy of affect. I'm not totally saying I'm against anger. You know, we shouldn't. You know, you should never get angry. But I'm not sure I can really see examples of when actually it ever really helps anything, apart from in the very short term. Okay, so that's that's really interesting and a really interesting way of putting it. And I think you're absolutely right in terms of talking about anger as being a the primary motivation for kind of people's actions and politics. I would I, I would agree with that. I would say that that I wouldn't want anger to be the basis that people are motivated uh, to, to 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 try and kind of break through capitalism. And I really like your your thing about the tiger, Jeremy. But um but I think I, I guess what I'm saying there, it, it is possible and this is kind of the synthesis of hippie hippiness of the 1960s, I suppose, through to kind of neoliberal uh, living under neoliberal reality today is kind of it's it's possible to like want a future that is based on like love and freedom and is motivated by how we want all of these things and we don't have all of these things. And that's kind of the world that we want that also is able to encompass within it the kind of anger that one has because of the injustices that are that are that that are around us every day i mean i'm i but i agree it can be all consuming i want to talk about bullet with butterfly wings by the smashing pumpkins which came out in 1995 as part of their album uh, melancholy and the infinite sadness it's just it's such a relief i find it such a relief and a release to listen to because it's so it's so angry and it and it, and it but, but the the lyrics despite all my rage i'm still just a rat in a cage is kind of a call to for anti-capitalism to make itself known anger's one thing right um but exactly what we're talking about is love and hate so let me let me turn it round, Jeremy. <laughs> if you're so down on anger and hate, <laughs> what's so good about love? Like, why would we be interested in love? Like, what is it about? What are we talking about when we mean love? Right? Well, what's what's so good about it? <laughs> as Howard Jones said, "What is love anyway?" Well, Hart and Negri in Empire say love means only that our continuous collaborations bring us joy. Uh, and they say, without this love, we are nothing. And I've, that's one of my favourite quotes, like forever, from anything. So love is obviously, in some sense, related to this Spinozan idea of joy that we talked about before in relation to collective joy. I think in Spinoza, though, isn't so love in the episode on collective joy, we define joy in Spinozan terms as like, you know, the, the feeling of increased capacities to affect or be affected by the world because of you to connect with other people and like in Spinoza I th- love is 
is that feeling but connected to an ex the idea of an external cause right yeah, so it's yes, basically yes. you know you meet the same person you feel joy you know your repeated encounters feel and feelings of joy means you start to associate joy with that person or a political leader right that's the you know or or you know, some sort of idea of a nation or something, right? Or, you know, some sort of political experience, perhaps a, 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 a football match between national teams and then that feeling of joy comes created, gets connected to a football team and then perhaps connected to a nation. Do you know what I mean? And like, hate, no, but hate is the, it's just the opposite. It's like, it's the association of sadness with it, with the idea of an external cause, right? So, yeah, you basically... <laughs> um, you know, you get to hate things which you think diminish your connectedness with the world or diminish your uh, ability to affect the world or to be affected by the world. You know, you come to hate what you think is causing that. Do you know what I mean? And I think it's really interesting if you think about it in that way um, because there's a lot that can go wrong with love in those terms because you can get, you can make a mistake about what, you can make a mistake about what's causing you sadness and what's causing you joy. Do you know what I mean? I have an alternative thesis, which is an alternative frame. Let's say that I have an alternative frame because I'm an um, amateur aromatherapist. For me, the big difference between joy and love is that joy is like, you know, the bergamot or eucalyptus or one of the top notes um, in a uh, olfactory scale. And what do I mean by that? I mean that it is, as we, I think we touched on this in episode three, it's like, it's here now. And then it's gone. It's not something that will stay with you. It might be associated with uh, the collectivity, like the other, the, ex the experience. You have a memory of it, but it, it, it necessarily isn't something which lingers. And I think that's the opposite of love, even though they come from the same family and obviously are, are, are related. Lo love is the kind of like the patchouli of emotions, as is hate. <laughs> like it linger, it lingers with you it's like a bottom bottom note you it's so you it's might associate it with all of these different feelings but i think love love sits in you in the same way that hate kind of sits it sits with you and it can be all-encompassing um in a way that i think joy joy doesn't have is not one of joy's attributes and i think why i'm more more inclined to chase joy than i am to chase love i quite like that idea of uh, love is love is is the 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 lingering scent of joy because <laughs> joy is fleeting but you know you 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 know you sort of like sit with that emotion by linking it with with something with an external cause which has caused that joy we we talked a little bit about rave and this kind of the experience of you know rave as a sort of experience of somewhat contentless love you know love for the crowd love for um love for you know the people around you so sort of love for everything i still think for me that the greatest you know the classic evocation of that is the the source candy staten uh, version of you got the love from 1991 which is still, you know, a great sort of dance floor anthem. But, of course, really interestingly, it's really interesting the way that is heard and experienced by crowds, because like so many, like a lot of even sort of disco and soul songs, technically the lyrics are just, you know, Christian. You know, the person who's being addressed in the song is, is God, you know, in a, according to a very Christian theology. That's not how you experience it when you hear it on the dance floor. You hear it as 
you hear it as an experience uh, indeed you hear it as an expression of solidarity the you who've got the love is all the people around you and the you know the the thing that you have to be seen through is to some extent the struggle of daily life you know to some extent the struggle of you know antagonism and conflict that we all have to engage in let's talk about the left like my relationship to the left like it's it's love and hate all of the time like it 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 takes up so much of my like internal emotional mechanisms because from one day to the next it's like i hate the left what is the left doing why am i even doing this can i go and find another experience of life somewhere else this is this is this is terrible it's i'm so disappointed in the left and then the next day it's like i love the left like the left is everything to me the left is like my family the left is my partner this is the only place that i feel at home and it's it's all of these incredibly strong emotions like i never feel like indifferent about the left and it's always kind of lingering i think part of my kind of you know ideal for myself and, and i do manage to achieve this quite a lot of the time is is to be out of that cycle of like loving the left and hating the left loving things and hating things from one day to the next is to be in a bit in the sort of position of what the buddhists call equanimity just sort of accepting, you know, that is just, you know, that that is, you know, things are imperfect. They'll be exciting one day. They'll be, they'll be disappointing the next day. And yet, to be able to maintain that position while also being implacable in my antagonism, you know, to capitalism and and the fact that it makes it very difficult for me to achieve that state, and it makes it even more difficult for people who are less privileged than me in lots of ways to achieve that state. And I think. I mean, for me, that's how that question, that that, no, that that notion of a sort of universal love sort of relates to uh, notions of sort of political conflict and political antagonism, that I think that I do, I do want to cultivate universal love. I think it's quite good. I think it's sort of, I don't think it's like possible it has a permanent state unless you're, unless you are just a fully enlightened being or something. But I also think that the thing that makes it more difficult for people to achieve, for all of us to achieve, like most of the time is, you know, at the moment, in the present moment in history, is capitalism. So I think you can be both basically down with that, down with like cosmic love, and you know, <laughs> and also um, you know, implacably opposed to, to capital. And I think sort of for me, if that is what sort of acid communism means in some sense, actually, I think it probably for me it does it does sort of mean that. I think yeah, the acid is love, and the communism is. Not hate, but the inta- the inherent antagonism to of capital, basically. Like yeah, capitalism I- is inherently antagonistic, right? There's, it involves inherently antagonistic relationships. In fact, you know the interests of of workers are, 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 are you know, the opposite of the interests of capital or the people who who uh, operate on behalf of capital. Which is, you know, those are those are antagonistic. So that so one of the one of the ways in which acid communism must work out is how does that that recognition of you know infinite relationality basically that we're all part of the part of uh uh, uh you know that the boundaries between us are sort of like you know much less stable and than we might think etc you know and that feeling of connectedness to everything and love for everybody and everything how do we stop that from just obscuring the inherent antagonisms in society and there's lots of you know um i'm going to do this bit actually so there's this great um, bit in Peter Shapiro's book about disco, the turn the beat around, right? And he, he talks about about this moment in soul music in the early seventies where they start talking like these uh, these these soul songs start talking critically about smiling faces, and Shapiro's got in mind, you know, the smiley face 
the smiley face symbol, which is now an emoji, right? And that sort of that becomes this really big thing in 1970, where it gets released on these pin badges with the slogan "Have a nice day," which is interesting. Right? Have a nice day, and it sort of starts to represent that sort of you know the universal cosmic love being turned into just you know undifferentiated positivity, right? And so, so Shapiro starts saying, "Well, look, you know what." Uh, we could also link that in in terms of soul music to you know the playing out of the of certain sort of like wing of of the civil rights movement the black civil rights movement in america which is sort of based on a christian idea of like universal love do you know what i mean uh, and so there he, he starts talking about these songs who start problematizing that and it's there, there's there's a number of songs uh, backstabbers by the OJs, etc. But the best example is probably "I'll Take You There" by the Staple Singers, right? Which because uh, the, the first lines of that are, "I know a place, ain't nobody crying, ain't nobody worried, ain't no smiling faces lying to the races," right? So it's sort of in that utopian um, drive of of soul. You know, we're going to get to the promised land. You know. Um, you know, people get ready. There's a train coming, and we're all, everybody's going to get on board. You don't need any tickets. Everybody can can get on board this train to the promised land, etc. Um, but it's sort of saying, you know, but it's saying it's there's a critique in that in that sort of utopianism. It's a critique of at the moment, you know, you've got all of this, all all of this um, smiling faces, uh, positivity, which hides the fact that you know there's conflict and antagonism, and like a lot of that is around around race do you know what i mean well that's re it's really a good point actually and it links to some of what uh, we talked about already because that kind of experience that people who come through you know the peace movement and the hippie movement in britain and then found themselves confronting thatcherism in the 80s i mean to some extent they were just going through in a, in a rather lower key way the experience that people had been through the um civil rights movement had gone through where the civil rights movement had been able to achieve you know quite significant political successes by the mid 60s but then it came up against the limit and the limit came at precisely the moment when martin luther king starts saying and he wants to organize across a multi-racial poor campaign they called it the poor people's campaign they want to build a campaign for class solidarity and class consciousness that and you know he doesn't live and he, he starts saying this and he actually i mean it's true king he's saying and he's saying to his closest friends they're, they're going to shoot me for saying this i'm not going to live i'm not going to live a year if i say this but i'm going to say it anyway and it's true he gets shot and so they're up against and like the the radicalization of black power the radicalization of the black movement um really you know it is is a direct response to that recognition um that um a recognition that they've come up against the limits of what they can achieve through a non-antagonistic politics a really important uh, you know musical you know discourse in the 70s in an 80s which you know appeals a lot to notions of love is obviously reggae and rastafari it has this language which seems to somehow evoke both antagonism and a kind of notion of universal love and solidarity so you know one love you know as in sort of bob marley's one love and in other songs is the one of the great slogans of, of rastafarian reggae and it, impl it precisely implies a notion of universal love and solidarity but reggae also has a language of antagonism you know it has a name for the thing you know which we are in struggle against which is you know the capitalist state which is babylon babylon yeah, exactly <laughs> max romeo socialism is love i mean that is great that is the reggae explicit socialist anthem this is the moment in the mid 70s when 
reggae and Rastafari culture is in in Jamaica is explicitly associated with Michael Manley's project to try to build a kind of democratic socialism in Jamaica, which is ultimately defeated by American imperialism, uh, like so much else in the 70s and early 80s. In some ways, the question we were sort of gesturing towards is like, well, how should we feel about the things we are opposed that we are opposed to and how should we feel about the even the people who are responsible for them like do we like how do i you know how do i feel about you know jeff bezos like do i hate him i, I don't know if i do i don't i don't know if i like and I, this is one of those things i really go back and forth over the years about like i remember you know i was brought up with a sort of sort of slightly quaker influence but also actually sort of anarchist influence kind of old very very old school like early 20th century anarchist kind of influenced notion indeed of universal love that you even and it's even there in Marx actually sometimes like we pity the bourgeois you know we want to emancipate the bourgeois from their kind of bourgeoisness like that's but I remember you know having a conversation about this with a girl with my girlfriend when I was sort of at 19 and saying well I think you should sort of try to love everybody and she said why like I don't love Thatcher I hate her like the war she's done and I was just oh yeah you're right actually. that is the tester isn't it that's the tester of your universal love <laughs> I know it is I find it almost impossible not just to, to say to say I don't hate Thatcher it's almost impossible but like what but it's still it's it's to what extent that's a, that hate is a position or to what extent that consumes you and I think this goes back to what you were saying before, yes, Jeremy, yeah. about like, uh, you know, both of you were talking about this, actually. It's like when I'm hating Thatcher, like, I, I don't know, actually, if I agree with you, Jeremy, now now I'm thinking about it. Like, I think I hate capitalism more than I hate Thatcher. I think so. I mean, in terms of yeah, an no, active, I I... in terms of an active emotion, like I hate, I hate Thatcher, but I don't, it doesn't consume me, maybe because like Thatcher's a figure of the past. What I think consumes me more is like the injustices that I see every day in terms of like when people treat each other in a shit way, that I find that that brings up a lot stronger emotion for me. But yeah, so but so like hate is, is, is an, uh, an attachment to something. It's like an obsession with something. But actually, we don't want to be a, a, a attached to these things that we hate. We want to we want to, you know, we want to break that attachment. Do you know what I mean? Which would mean losing your hatred, moving beyond it some way. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Uh, like, yeah, so that's probably... Who said this? Um, the, our greatest revenge will be by bringing ourselves to happiness. I think it might be William Morris. And he was talking about after Peterloo and he was saying, like, like let's not talk about vengeance and hate. Like, what the, the real, you know, the real vengeance is by making... is by bringing ourselves to happiness and making these forces that we hate irrelevant do you know what i mean i always think of that in terms of like like if that she was still alive you know the best revenge would be to make her and her ideas completely irrelevant to the world and something we don't have to think about or bother about and that's the same with capital isn't it it's a relationship it's a relate capital is a relation we want to escape from we want to make it irrelevant we want to get it out of our lives you know what i mean and if you hate something you can't do that because it you you obsess about it but that's the bypass mechanism that's that makes sense but it's a bypass yeah. mechanism which takes which doesn't take into consideration the reality of that system in terms of how it manifests yeah. itself on your like material life day to day and how it affects other people i think it would be great for us and this is i think part of this the acid corbinism project we're trying to create the spaces where people can 
see themselves and other people and their relationships and the possibilities differently. And I do think that's really important, but I'm not sure that we've answered the question. I'm not sure we're able to answer it in this podcast of how that relates to like the bypass um, system would 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 relate to justice because well, that's it doesn't have thing. to be bypassed though because. Because that brings us just back again to this, you know, can you drop out sort of thing. Exactly. It's like, basically, the real question is this, right? Can you have a politics which includes antagonism, which isn't based on hate? Or uh, perhaps you can use the politics of hate, but like, how then do you escape from it? Do you know what I mean? Uh, I, I think you're right. You're exactly right. I think we have come at a good formula. Like, We want a politics which is antagonistic, but which doesn't, but isn't based on, on hatred. I think that's right. I mean, I think... You know, I, I found all that stuff about people celebrating when Thatcher died. I found that personally really depressing because I thought, well, if you think it was Thatcher who did all that to us, then you really don't understand the situation. Yeah, If you think Thatcher was anything but an agent of like, personal forces and class relations and that, that we all, and, that, and, that, and you don't understand that that's the thing to which, you know, which we have to fight against, then, you know, you're just trapped in a kind of bourgeois conception of history. So... But I think. Yeah, but, oh, I don't know. Problem, I don't though, know. I don't know. That is a problem because you. People have names and addresses, because, man. I think it's a really important point, Jeremy. Is that like you know, um, you you don't have to be a bad person to do bad things, right? Yeah, you exactly. just have to follow the logic of capital, right? No, you're, it, you're Marx right. talks about it in Capital, doesn't he? I can't remember who he called Mister Moneybags or whatever. It doesn't have to be. You know, he can be he can go to church on Sunday and be the most kind person, but you know, he if he's gonna if his business is gonna survive, he has to be. You know, he has to act in a horrible, ruthless, inhuman way. But the problem with that is, you know, um, how do you make a motivational politics around something which is so intangible, which is abstract? Do you know what I mean? No, you're, so you're the right. tendency is to personalise it. You're right. And Nadia, you're completely right. People have names and addresses. I mean, I've been really critical of those people who want to say, oh, like you can't, ha- you can never concretize. Like you, you know, I mentioned Jeff Bezos, and I think you've got to talk about Jeff Bezos. I think we cannot. You're right. We want to be not contained with hatred by him. I think we want to feel quite cold towards him. Actually, I don't think we have to really I love like that him. Coldness. Yeah, yeah we don't want to be cold, but we, cold. but we want to be, we want to be absolutely implacable in our determination to take everything away from him that he's accumulated, like on the basis yeah. of accumulation. We want to be implacable in that and implacable in our resilient uh, determination to do that and our recognition that there is nothing, we cannot negotiate with him. He will do everything in his power to stop us and we have to do everything in our power to stop him without that turning into a personalised relation a relation of hatred. We want a cold, implacable love. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 that's good. Yeah, that is good, actually. Right, that sounds like a basis of a song. So we've got the lyrics. <laughs> this show is brought to you by Navara Media. To find articles, videos, and more audio content like this, head to navaramedia.com. If you particularly enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes? And as well as subscribing, leave us a review. Navara Media can only exist thanks to subscribers and supporters. If you have the means, please consider subscribing at support.navaramedia.com. As well as helping us continue to produce regular content, subscribers will also receive priority access to events as well as promotions throughout the year. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navara Media. Media for a different politics.